going. <clears throat> Today we're talking about stress. I've lived 14 years. Uh, I was 14 years old before I endured the first grand scheme of stress. And uh, I found myself completely incapacitated in my daily life. 14 year old, too foggy to read, to write, too physically weak to work out, even go to school. So what I did is I stole a few cars, I did a few breaking enters, smashed a few windows, and then I was fine again. Well, the temporary disability of the heartbreak went away, but it soon had an assault on my dignity and my sense of anguish about the next relationship. What next, I thought? Am I doomed to hell for life? Even as I console myself with my nocturnal venting against the establishment, well, that's not true, against everything, including, including all those I really loved. I couldn't shake the overwhelming malaise that had engulfed me. Somehow, physical illness had really coloured my psycho-emotional reality. I was really fucked up. This experience, of course, is far from uncommon. Long before my self-imposed punishment to study weightlifting began and it started to shed light on another effect, um, an intuitive understanding I had between my body and my emotions. It wasn't based on any form of logic, but we use feeling sick as a grab bag term for both sensory symptoms, fever, fatigue, nausea, and the psychological malaise of you know, um, um, being around people who are violent or, um, you know, losing things that are, are important to us. We also had, I had a nice bunch of emotions woven into in my life, like sadness. And my dad taught me about the offense you take at relatives saying the wrong things. So there's been a link connecting emotions and disease for millennia, Greeks, Indians, everybody has known about it. The blood, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm in their healing practices, they've all believed that these are imbalances in the four physical excretions of the body are caused by emotion. These beliefs are fossilized into our present language, like melancholy comes from Latin words like milan and bitter bile, choler and melancholic person is groom, gloomy or embittered. A phlegmatic person is languid or impassive. Phlegm makes us lethargic. But as modern science tries to catch up, it is struggling to really connect anything that is beyond doubt. <clears throat> Those mysterious things called feelings where modern neuroscience is just beginning to understand it, seemed to exist entirely out the realm of what could be examined with rationalism. For nearly three centuries, 300 years, the ideas that our emotions could impact our health remained a scientific taboo. Setting out to fight one sort of dogma, dogma, Descartes and his rational thinking model had inadvertently created a model, which were only just beginning to shake off. It was about 1950 that Austrian-Canadian physician and psychologist um, pioneered the notion of stress as we know it today, drawing the scientific community's attention to the effect of stress on physical health and popularizing the concept around the world. In addition to their scientific uh, dedication, they also understood the branding component of any successful movement 
and they worked tirelessly to include the word itself in dictionaries around the world. Today, the word stress, perhaps the word, is the word most singularly pronounced in all languages in the world. The invisible threads that weave body and mind together were studied in a groundbreaking work on the link between the central nervous system and the immune system, exploring how immune molecules made the blood in the blood can trigger brain function that profoundly affects our emotions. It's revolutionized our understanding of the integration between uh, the human self and the emotional self. The science connecting health and emotions we can examine the interplay of our emotions and our physical health mediated by what is that seemingly yet what turns out remarkably concrete experience called stress. With an eye to modern medicine's advances in cellular and molecular biology which have made it possible now to measure how our nervous system and our hormones affect our susceptibility to disease and varied in things like depression, arthritis, AIDS, chronic fatigue, and, uh, and others. By passing these chemical intermediaries, we can begin to understand the biological underpinnings of how emotion affect disease. The same parts of the brain that control stress response play an important role in the susceptibility and the resistance to inflammatory diseases such as arthritis. And since it's these parts of the brain that also play a role in depression, we can begin to understand why with so many patients, inflammatory diseases may also be experienced, the same person may experience depression at different times in their life. So rather than seeing the psych as the source of such illness, we're discovering that while feelings don't directly cause or cure disease, the biological mechanisms underlying them may cause or contribute to disease. So therefore, Many of the nerve pathways and molecules underlying both psychological responses and inflammatory diseases are the same, making predisposition to one type of illness likely to go along with the predisposition to another. The question need to be rephrased, therefore to ask, which of the many components that work together to create emotions also cause that effect in the other constellation of biological events like our immune response? which come together to fight or cause disease. Rather than asking if depression thoughts can cause an illness or if the body, we need to ask what mind noise triggers what nerve pathways and what nerve pathways cause depressive thoughts and see how these affect the cells and molecules and therefore disease. We even begin to understand how emotional memories reach the part of the brain that control the hormonal stress response and how such emotions can ultimately affect the workings of the immune system and therefore illness, even cancer. We know in reverse how signals from the immune system can affect the brain and the emotional and physical responses it controls. The molecular basis of feeling sick. In all this, the boundaries between mind and body are beginning to blur. Indeed, the relationship between memory, emotion and stress is perhaps the most fascinating aspect of the inner wealth work. Consider how we deal with mind noise, the constant swirling of inputs and outputs as we move through the world, barraged by the stream of stimuli and sensations. Every minute of the day and night we feel thousands of sensations, agitations that might trigger a positive emotion such as happiness or a negative emotion such as sadness 
or all emotion or no emotion. A trace of perfume, a light touch, a fleeting shadow, a strain of music. And there are thousands and thousands of psychological responses, palpitations and sweating that can equally accompany positive emotions such as love or negative emotions such as fear or can happen without any emotional tinge at all. What makes these sensory inputs and psychological outputs emotions is the charge that gets added to them somehow. Somehow we take an event and we give it positive or negative spin. Each agitation can lead into the black box, your mind, and produce an emotional experience. Or something in the black box can lead out to an emotional response that seems to come from nowhere. Memory, it turns out, is one of the major factors mediating the dialogue between sensory input and the emotional experience we have. Our memories of past experiences become encoded in triggers and switches and therefore can control and determine the direction of one emotional destination of thought from another. Mood is not homogeneous. It is more like Swiss cheese, filled with holes. Triggers are highly specific, tripped by sudden trails of memory. A faint fragrance, a few bars in tune, a vague silhouette that tapped into our memory, buried deep but not completely erased. These sensory inputs that incur in the moment through layers of time, parts of the brain that control memory, and they pull out with them not only reminders of the senses once triggered, but also trails of the emotions that were connected to that memory. These memories become connected to emotions, which are processed in other parts of the brain. And these other parts of the brain that have been known to the Greeks for, for thousands of years, these brain centers are linked to nerve pathways, to the sensory parts of the brain and to the frontal lobe and to the hypothalamus, the coordination centers of thought and memory. The same sensory input can trigger a negative emotion or a positive one, depending on the memory. This is where stress comes in. Much like memory, it mediates how we interpret, respond to various experiences. A complex set of biological and psychological factors determine how we respond to stress. Some types of stress can be stimulating and invigorating, so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some of those stress can be draining and incapacitating, leading us frustrated and hopeless. This dichotomy of good versus bad stress, determined by biology, underpinning our feelings, by the dose and duration of those stress hormones, secreted by the body in full response to the stress stimulus. As soon as the stress event occurs, it bang, triggers the release of a cascade of hypothalamus, pituitary and adrenal hormones, the brain's stress response. It also triggers the adrenal glands to release epithephrine and adrenaline and the sympathetic nervous system to squirt out adrenaline-like chemicals all over the body, nerves that wire the heart and the gut and the skin. So the heart is driven to beat faster, the fine hairs on your skin stand up, you may sweat, you may feel nausea, you might want to shit yourself, but your attention is focused, your vision becomes clear, a surge of power comes and helps you run. These same chemicals released from the nerves make blood flow to your muscles, preparing you to sprint. It's exciting. All this occurs quickly. If you will measure the time, the stress hormones in your body and the saliva, saliva that already increase within three minutes of something happening. 
In psychology tests, playing a fast-paced video game will make salivary cortisol increase and spill over into your blood almost as soon as the battle begins. But if you prolong the stress by being unable to control it or by making it too potent for too long, these hormones and chemicals, they still continue to pump out from the nerves and glands. And then the same molecules that mobilized you to action, that gave you a short sprint, become debilitating. That is some good and some bad. As the nervous system secretes more and more stress hormones, performance increases, but up to a point. After that, in a bell curve tipping point, performance begins to suffer as hormones continue to flow. What makes stress bad is that it makes us render us what was previously an exciting thing, makes us drained and exhausted. The nervous system and the hormone stress response react to a stimulus in bang, microseconds. But the immune system takes part, parts or even days or hours. It takes so much longer to respond. So it's unlikely that a single, even powerful, short bang stress on the, in the order of moments could have any effect on the immune system and therefore our health. However, when the stress turns chronic, immune systems begin to be impaired as the stressful stimulus hammers on the stress hormones and chemicals and they continue to pump out. This is the negative impact of agitated mind and mind noise. It causes chronic worry, chronic stress, and therefore triggers an overload that the immune system can't handle. The immune system start to get exhausted and the spleen and the thymic nurseries never have a chance to recover from unabated, continuous hammering of cortisol. So these foreign triggers, this continued stress, and we're less able to defend and fight when faced with new invaders because the immune system becomes exhausted. So if you're exposed to say a common cold or a flu, when you are chronically stressed out, your immune system is less able to react and you become more susceptible to that infection. Extended exposure to stress, especially a variety of stresses at the same time, any combination, from a vast menu of stresses like divorce, moving, demanding job, a loved one, ongoing childcare adds up to the state of exhaustion that leads to what we call burnout. But most of all, the agitation that the mind noise from these events causes becomes default for people and they lose ground zero and unknowingly move forward carrying agitation and mind noise. Members of a certain profession are more prone to burnout than others. Nurses and teachers, for example, are amongst those at the highest risk. These professionals are faced daily with caregiving situations in their work life, often with inadequate pay, inadequate help in their jobs, and with too many patients and students in their charge. But it's also a self-selecting sample. It's only certain types of thinkers who choose those occupations. Some studies begin to show that burnout patients may have not only a psychological burnout, but also a physiological burnout, adrenal fatigue we call it, a flattening cortisol response, an inability to respond to any stress with a given slight burst of cortisol. In other words, chronic unrelenting stress can change the stress response itself, and it can change other hormone systems in the body as well, all of which can lead to illness of a life-threatening nature. One of the most profound of such changes affects the reproductive system. 
Extended periods of stress can shut down the secretion of reproductive hormones in men and women, resulting in lower fertility. But the effects are especially perilous for women. Reoccurring and extended episodes of depression result in permanent changes in bone structure, increasing the risk of osteoporosis. In other words, we register stress literally in our bones. But stress isn't a direct causal function of the circumstance we're in. What either amplifies or ameliorates our experience of stress is, once again, memory. Our perception of stress, and therefore our response to it, is an ever-changing thing that depends a great deal on the circumstances and settings in which we find ourselves. It depends on previous experience and knowledge, as well as the actual event that has taken place. And it depends on memory too. The most acute manifestation of how memory mod modulates stress is post-traumatic stress, PTSD. For striking evidence on how memory encodes past experience into triggers, which then catalyze present experiences, researchers found Holocaust survivors and their first-degree relatives, that is, children and their siblings, exhibit similar hormonal stress response. This could be a combination of nature and nurture. These survivors as young parents for whom the trauma was still fresh may have subconsciously taught their children in a common style of stress response. But it's also possible that these automatic hormonal stress responses permanently changed the parents' biology and were transmitted via DNA to their children. Once again, memory encodes stress into our bodies. Stress need not be on the order of war, rape or holocaust to trigger at least some elements of PTSD. Common stresses that we all experience can trigger, trigger emotional memory of a stressful circumstance and all its accompanying physiological and psychological responses. Prolonged stress such as a divorce, a hostile workplace, the end of a relationship or the death of a loved one can all trigger elements of PTSD. Among the major stresses, which include life events expected to be on the list, such as divorce and death of a loved one, is also something that's really unexpected, at least to those of us who haven't undergone it, and that is moving house. The commonalities between something as devastating as death or divorce and something as mundane as moving is an amazing correlation. One is certainly lost the loss of someone or the loss of something familiar. Another is novelty, finding ourselves in a new and an unfamiliar place because of the loss. Together, these amount to one word called change, moving away from something someone knows and towards something one doesn't. An unfamiliar environment is the universal stressor to nearly all species, no matter how developed or undeveloped. One such environment is the home, and the relationship we share with a significant other. Reducing stress causing mind noise requires us to explore interpersonal relationships, both contributing to stress and shielding us from it. How the immune system changes our moods and what we can do to harness these neurobiological insights to alleviate our experience of the stresses within every human life form. Environment is not just physical, environment is relationship. And as with moving house, moving relationship can be as stressful as dealing with death. It's all loss, which is another way to position change, moving away from something one knows towards something one doesn't. Your job offers yet another environment 
and the opportunities for stress are exponential. The higher you rise in the field of art, the more change becomes a matter of life and death. Change, moving away from something one knows and towards something one doesn't. Therefore, the faster we can turn something we don't know into something we do know, the less stress will be and the less PTSD will have. In relationship breakdown, this is called rebound, the art of career, it's called reinventing yourself. And the pace of life accelerates, we need to embrace mastery of change to become better at reinventing itself, to be better at jumping from change to change to reinventing the future. We have acknowledged the need for spikes of stress that come and go. We have seen that these spikes can also trigger long-term, more sustained stress, which is more sinister and hidden from view. Stress can also trigger memories, and this means the source of stress might be dealt with, but the underlying memory might be woken up and put you in a hyper alert state without knowing it. You're being paid and rewarded to deliver. Delivery diminishes with stress. You are not being paid to be in a sustained worry, anxiety, uncertainty, loss, fear, agitated space because these things make your contribution less and less productive and unsustainable. My noise therefore will be, as we've noted, ruin your career, your health and your interpersonal relationship. This is why Walker Chi is a daily seven step process to help you pacify stress, to keep the future clear, adapt to change without loss. The Walker Chi process moves you through memory. It moves you through anything that causes you stress. So the stress is a spike. It is not a sustained response. It doesn't affect your immune system and doesn't make you therefore live longer and enjoy life shorter. This is Chris. You have a beautiful day. Bye for now.